morning, everyone. Let me add my welcome to Paul's. As he says, my name's Matty. I'm an elder and trainee minister here. And it's my privilege to preach God's word this morning. So we're back in the book of Joel, the second part of that reading that we had earlier on page 761 in our church Bibles. Don't know what you made of chapter one as we come to chapter two, but I'm sure that many of us will be feeling particularly in need of the Lord's help to understand this part of his word. So let me pray and ask that God does help us to understand what he has to say to us this morning. Father, we've just been singing that you alone are worthy of the highest praise. And so we do pray that in our time together, you would be rightly praised and glorified. And we pray that you would help us to understand all the things that you want to say to us in this part of your word, that we might rightly be in awe uh, and uh, magnify and glorify you in all the ways in which you deserve. We pray all these things uh, through the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So Joel, uh, chapter 2, and I'll read verses 1 to 11. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the city walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? As we begin this morning, I want us to picture together a movie scene. Let's imagine that we're watching a film together, and the film begins with a group of people huddled in some sort of basement or bunker. Worried looks are exchanged across the room. The camera shakes. The camera pans out then, and we see that this room is in a city which has been badly ravaged by some sort of conflict. Buildings are left partially destroyed. Sirens are blaring and the streets are deserted, see for a few worried people who are running to find shelter somewhere. Obviously, our hearts go out to these people. We realize that we are witnessing a scene of hopelessness, a scene of destruction and despair, and our sympathies lie with them. We share in their terror. The 
camera pans out again and we're now on the outskirts of the city and we find large groups of soldiers and, and tanks and artillery marching towards the town. And then we notice that among this military might, the flags they're flying are the flags of America and the UK. The tagline flashes up on screen, Berlin, 1945. And we realize that as well as being a day of terror, a day of destruction and a day of reckoning, this is also a day of liberation, a day through which peace in Europe will be achieved and the forces of evil will be cataclysmically defeated. So a dark, dark day of despair and also a day of great and shining hope and deliverance. I'm sure we can't have failed to notice as Joel was read to us this morning that this is a book which records some dark, dark days, days of darkness in the present for God's people as they experience acute suffering, but then also on the near horizon, the day of the Lord. Now, if we're in church this morning as people who trust in the Lord Jesus, as we've been reflecting on in our songs and in our prayers, we, of course, look forward to the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus returns to save and to judge. We look forward to that day as captives look forward to their liberation. It is a day of the consummation of our hope. It is a day of joy and gladness. What Joel does this morning, though, is he helps us to keep sight of another aspect of that day. The day of the Lord, he writes, is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as God's great and terrible judgment falls. So as we spend these next four Sunday mornings in Joel, we should expect that it will be a book which is deeply strengthening for us. It is a book in which we will be helped to see God's mercy and grace and the wonder of the rescue that we've just been singing about. We'll see those things with greater clarity and rejoice. But as we begin this morning, it is also a book which is deeply sobering one which draws us to lament over sin in our world and in our hearts in the light of the reality of judgment coming from an awesome and holy God. And that's the point at which we begin these studies this morning. The big idea in these opening chapters of Joel is that remembering the day of the locust should cause the people of Joel's day to repent in light of the coming day of the Lord. Remember the day of the locust and repent in light of the day of the Lord. And hence, our two headings under which we'll study this together, the day of the locust and the day of the Lord. Let's begin then with the day of the locust. Verse 1 of chapter 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Now, we don't actually know much about Joel. This is like the only biographical detail that we get. His dad's name is Pethuel, and we don't know much more. Uh, you can read commentaries on Joel, and no one knows exactly when it was written. Some people think before the exile. Some people think after. Some people think he's one of the earlier minor prophets. Some people think he's one of the later minor prophets. The date and the setting are slightly hard to trace. 
the most important thing seems to be that he is speaking God's word to God's people at a time of deep disaster in Israel. We have surely spotted that disaster as we had those readings. It is a disaster which is completely unprecedented. Verse 2, hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. This disaster is unique. They've never seen its like before and they will keep telling people about it for generations to come. All of this is building tension. Jewel doesn't open by saying what the disaster is but how unprecedented it is. The reader, the hearer, is left thinking, what is he talking about? He soon expands, though. Verse 4. What the cutting locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. The thing that's befallen them is a devastating plague of locusts. Now, the point of these verses, it's not that there are literal different types and species of locusts or that these are different points in the life cycle of the locust. This is a classic example of Hebrew poetry. One of their main forms of emphasis in Hebrew poetry was repetition and parallels, repeating similar statements one on top of the other to drive them a point. This is how many locusts there were, and this is how widespread their destruction was. Nothing is left in the land. This is a picture of complete agrarian devastation. Every last morsel, every last bit of green is gone. I don't know what you make of verse 6, where Joel compares the locust to an invading army with teeth like lions. That's how devastating this attack is. It's as if the the country has been overrun by an invading enemy force. That's not hyperbole, though. We know it's not, because even in our day, locust attacks can be so, so deadly and devastating. You can look up swarms of locusts on YouTube, and it's terrifying. I heard one story in preparing for this sermon of a great locust swarm which, which hit the, uh, the rural south of America during the Great Depression, an already dark time in America's history. And it was said that they were so vast and voracious, this swarm of locusts, that they, they would eat the bark off the, 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 the fence posts of the field, not just the crops, but even the fences were being sh- stripped bare by this plague of locusts. This is a vivid and terrifying image from the natural world, one which strikes fear and despair in the heart of the hearer. This is such an unprecedented and widespread disaster, though, and and Joel drives that point home even further in the descriptions which follow. He describes all the effects of the locusts and also the people he particularly have been affected by this. So first of all, let's look at the widespread devastation that he really drives home. Verse 7, we see that this, this plague has laid waste the vine and splintered the fig tree. It has stripped off the bark and thrown it down. The branches are made white. Verse 10, the fields are destroyed. The ground mourns. The grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. 
Verses 11 and 12 as well, the barley and wheat harvest has perished, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm and apple, in fact all the trees, both the bare necessities, the daily necessities of, of wheat and barley and grain and also all the luxuries of apples and pomegranates and figs, everything is gone. These locusts have devoured everything in their path and the people are left with nothing. Which people, well, that brings us to the three groups who had a bit more vividness as Joel name checks them. And also these people, they get us to the underlying thing that's going on behind this devastating locust swarm. First of all, he addresses the drunkards, verse 5. We can see how logically they would be affected by this if they're accustomed to spending their days consuming sweet wine. Well, the vine has failed. The, the source, the enabling of their drinking has been cut off at the source. There's a hint here, though, of something a bit more going on beneath the surface. Why are drunkards mentioned first, of all people? We know that elsewhere in the Old Testament, drunkenness and being drunk on sweet wine, that is a characteristic of a feeling and ungodly leadership in Israel. At times in the past when Israel has been characterized by priests and elders and kings who have been far from God, drunkenness is often one of the things that's name-checked as one of the areas where they're going wrong. Joel addresses the farmers as well. Verse 11, be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wheel, O vine dressers. We can feel the anguish that they must have felt, can't we, as they see all of their hard work going up in flames. I remember a while ago watching a documentary about the Titanic. It was from the point of view of the shipbuilders in Belfast. And when news first started to break of the sinking of the Titanic, the morning of the 15th of April, 1912, some of the shipyard workers from Harland and Wolfe, the big dock in Belfast where it was built, they were weeping in the streets. Are these big, stoic, burly Ulstermen weeping in the streets? Yes, over the loss of life, of course, but also because of how much of themselves they had poured in to building this vessel, the thing that was meant to be unsinkable. Blood and sweat and tears poured into it only for it to feel so catastrophically. They wept in the streets. I think that captures something of what the farmers are meant to feel as they see field after field devastated after their many, many months of hard work, all disappearing in an instant. We'll get to the one more specific people group that's mentioned in a wee while, but first of all, I want us to notice that in verse 8, the implication is that the scope goes further than the three specific groups of people. This call to weep and lament, this is something which all the people in the land are being called to do. And the image that's used here of a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth, this is one of the two deep and visceral images of grief that the Hebrew world knew. If they were trying to draw up a picture of the worst sorrow imaginable, one of the images they had was the grief of a father over his firstborn son, and the other was the grief of a betrothed over the death of her beloved. So this is a call then for all the land to feel deep, guttural, 
grief for everyone in the land to see the destruction, to feel the pain, and to lament. As we understand that, we're starting to edge towards the underlying thing behind this disaster. When God calls his people to lament in the Old Testament, it's not just an emotional exercise. It's also a deeply spiritual one. I wonder if that's why the third group that's name-checked specifically is the priests. Down in verses 13 and 14. Maybe most significantly of all, the fact that they are mentioned here makes it clearer that there is something more going on beneath the surface of a locust plague. It's an unprecedented disaster. It's a widespread disaster. Here it becomes clear it's also a spiritual disaster in the land. The priests are called to put on sackcloth and lament. They're called to consecrate a fast and call a solemn assembly to lead the people in this act of corporate, communal lamenting and repentance. We brushed over a detail earlier that the green offering and the drink offering are cut off. Well, that's a significant detail. I know that you and I will feel sad when we're prevented from coming to church, either because we're ill or because there's a pandemic on. It's sad when we can't go to be with God's people and to worship him corporately together. Think how it would feel if you were told tomorrow that actually you literally cannot worship God anymore. That's what the people must have understood by the green offering and the drink offering being cut off. These were the basic daily acts of service and devotion that the people were called to, and they can't do that. They cannot relate to God and worship him in the way that they're commanded to do, the way they want to do. Suddenly, for them, God must feel very remote. It's a terrifying thought. That's why the priests are called to lead them in this solemn assembly of weeping and mourning, lamenting and repenting. That's the proper response to all of this, lamentation and repentance. You may have seen in the news recently that the American author Cormac McCarthy died a couple of weeks ago. He was an author I quite liked, so I spent some time reading lots of different obituaries to Cormac McCarthy. And one of his, his colleagues and friends summed his life up like this, summed his writings up like this. He said McCarthy was an Old Testament prophet reminding us that we are sinners all. I think if you've read any of McCarthy's works, you'll know that rings true. His was a very bleak picture of human nature. You don't put one of his novels down and come away feeling like you want to punch the air with glee. You come away feeling mankind is deeply, deeply flawed, deeply sinful. In a similar and a much more acute way that Joel is saying to his readers that this current catastrophe, as they look at the devastation all around them, this should be a wake-up call to the people to remember their sin before a holy God. 
Now, Joel's a bit different from other minor prophets in this regard. He doesn't mention here any specific sins of which they need to repent. Maybe, as we saw, there's a hint of, of negligent leadership as represented by their drunkenness, but there's nothing else specific, no specific case of idolatry or unfaithfulness that he tells them to repent of. But even still, There are many clear implications here that what's happening is not just natural disaster, but covenant curse from the Lord. The very fact that it's a plague of locusts, well, where have we seen that before? Unprecedented in their days, but very present in Egypt, one of the plagues that God sent to try and turn the heart of Pharaoh. Widespread famine. That's something that we know in Deuteronomy that is one of the curses which will befall the people if they fail to walk in faithfulness to God and to his covenant. Twice it's mentioned that the vine and the fig tree have dried up, have languished. These were the things that God's promised land was meant to have an abundance of. A land of figs and wine, a, a land overflowing with abundant and generous blessing from God Specifically, the fact that they have failed is a sign that there's a spiritual element to all this. And even the very fact of the lack of access to God in worship is mentioned in the lack of ability to bring offerings to him. This is the land where the people are meant to know God intimately, and here they cannot perform the most basic acts of worship to him. All of this then builds up a picture of more than just natural but spiritual disaster and covenant curse. Why else would Joel need to tell them to tell their children? After all, wouldn't you mention this to your kids if you lived through such a time of of deep hardship? Won't we all tell our kids stories of the COVID pandemic? Isn't that a natural thing to do? Of course they would tell them anyway. But it's really driven home in those first few verses to remember it and to tell their children and to let them tell their children and to let them tell their children. Remember this unprecedented time because this needs to be a reminder for God's people always to walk in covenant faithfulness to God. To that end then, it must be something for us to remember as well a reminder for us to walk in faithfulness to our God. Now, we know, as we read a book like this, that living on this side of the cross, that dynamic of blessings and curse is fundamentally different for those who are in Christ Jesus. In him, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, and for us, Christ Jesus became curse as he died on the cross. So the dynamic has fundamentally shifted And I'm not therefore saying that every time anything bad happens in our lives that we must call it out as judgment on sin. But maybe a bit more than we're comfortable acknowledging. Maybe that's true on a national level. I think we need to be very, very careful and cautious about trying to read the runes and and trace out God's judgment falling on any group of people or any land. But at a national level, as we move further and further away from God's commands, we, we don't necessarily need to get our runes out and work out which catastrophe relates to which sin. 
But for what it's worth, I have found myself praying a lot more recently as I've reflected on just how far away from God and his word and his will that our nation is is, is falling. I find myself a lot more praying, Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. So maybe, just maybe, there's a slight note for us in this of our attitude towards our nation. And I think it's key then, if that's the case, that what we're called to do here is not to lambast. That's quite easy to do. We'll find many Christian preachers are happy to stand up and lambast the world as if they're somehow just a bit dim, unlike us clever people who've worked out God's will. Lambasting isn't very helpful, but lamentation is. As we see the widespread effects of our sin, our abandoning of God's word and his will, we should lament for the state of our nation, but we should also lament for the state of our hearts. Everything we see out there, we know is painfully and depressingly present right in here. So certainly in our own lives, I'm sure we can think of moments when we have chosen to ignore God and to go our own way, and it's led to devastation. Maybe not on this scale, but in in our lives, a scale that feels not too far removed from the fear and terror and uncertainty that Joel is trying to portray here. And we see then that the right response to all of this is to lament and to repent, to see the vividness, the offense of sin laid bare, and to call on God for his mercy, to lament the presence of sin in the world, in our hearts, to repent and ask for God's mercy in the light of it. It's wonderful, as we've seen already this morning, that is a prayer that we can pray with confidence if we are in the Lord Jesus. He does not remove his mercy from us if our trust is in Christ. But nonetheless, that call to repent and to lament, these things are given a lot more urgency for Joel's readers when they remember that the day of the locust is just a foreshadowing of the day of the Lord. It's our second heading this morning. And it's a comparison that Joel himself draws. Chapter 1, verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction comes from the Almighty, it comes. The day of the Lord is something which we see promised a lot in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets. And at times, Israel thought this was a day when God was going to come and judge all of the nations around them, the nations who didn't know God. And so they could be quite blasé about the day and have that kind of bring it on attitude. Several of the prophets call that out and say, no, 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 this is a day of dread for everyone because God's judgment doesn't stop at the borders of Israel. God's judgment is for all, even for us. So their attitude shouldn't be bring it on. It should be alas for the day, as Joel says. And as he goes on in chapter 2, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. One of the first things we notice about this day is that it's an imminent day. We're twice told that it's near, it's so near that they're meant to blow the trumpet, the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of an air raid siren. 
So it's a day of fear and alarm which it caused people to tremble. If that's the sound of the day, the sound of an air raid siren, well, the next thing we notice is the light. More poetic repetition here. A day of darkness, gloom, clouds, thick, deep darkness. As Paul alluded to earlier, we of course see our fair share of days of darkness and gloom in Scotland, hopefully not next week during our picnic. But there's something much deeper going on here than just a bit of cloud. We know, don't we, that darkness is a common image in the Bible for God's terrible judgment falling. In fact, the exact word which is used here in the Hebrew, it's the same word which is used to describe the plague of darkness in Egypt. Interesting that, locusts and darkness, this time in the past when God showed his judgment, the same language that's used here. I'll take it though that when we read this, our minds must look forward as well to that darkness which descends around Jesus' death on the cross that day of the Lord when his judgment and wrath fell on his own beloved son. So that's what darkness is usually doing in the Bible, the sign of God's judgment, and therefore it's such a day of dread for Joel and his readers. And that dread is only compounded when Joel fleshes out a bit more that this judgment will take the form of an invading force. And as we read through verses 3 to 11, you may notice there are so many striking similarities between the swarm of locusts which has already devoured everything in the land and the forces of the Lord which come on the day of the Lord. Chapter 2 Verse 2, their like has never been seen before, just like the locust plague was unprecedented. The locusts cause widespread, inescapable devastation and destruction. Verse 3 of chapter 2 tells us that these forces have a scorched earth policy. They transform the land from a paradise into a barren wilderness. We learn that they are more than just an army, but they carry out this invasion with utter and comprehensive military precision. Just check all the military details off with me. They're like war horses, the tanks of the day, striking fear as they carry out their orders. They march unswervingly towards their goal, carrying out their duties with precision. They are everywhere, the tops of the mountains, the city walls, the people's houses, and they're unstoppable. They charge, they scale, they burst through weapons. They are not halted. These are terrifying details. But the most terrifying one is still to come. And it's the fact that leading this charge, riding in the midst of these troops and commanding them, verse 11, is the Lord himself. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. If the locusts are a covenant curse from the Lord, well, they point forward to this sobering reality. On the day of the Lord, it will be the Lord himself who will come to bring devastating, inescapable, judgment. That's ultimately why all faces grow pale 
why all people are in anguish. That's ultimately why nature itself is turned on its head as in verse 10. And it's why Joel's conclusion is entirely appropriate. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? This is a sobering passage, and I want us, if our trust is in the Lord Jesus, to not lose hold of the great confidence that we ought to have, even in the light of his return and the great day of the Lord and the coming judgment. That is a confidence which ought to be unshakable because of what God has done for us in Christ. And next week and throughout Joel, we will see that there is real hope for Israel and for us as God's people today, even in the midst of all this terror. But even with all that being said, before we get to that great gospel light shining through and the hope that we have, we too need to pause and let the cold and dark reality of everything that Joel is describing here to sink in. Who can endure the day of the Lord? The answer is, of course, absolutely nobody. It's significant that all of this is being addressed to God's people, the people whom God has covenanted himself with, has promised to bless and protect, and who's guaranteed his unstopping and enduring steadfast love. And yet for Joel, as with all of the minor prophets, there is no conflict between the reality of God's faithfulness and steadfast love towards his people and the reality of terrible judgment on any who feel to walk in covenant faithfulness to him. So the big message for the people then seems to be this. Do not presume on God's grace. Do not rest on your status of being his people. That's something which... We see time and again Israel were guilty of. We're God's people already. We don't need to worry about living for God, therefore. Now, Joel's saying, in the light of the current catastrophe and in the light of the coming day, be urgent in repentance and returning to faithfulness towards the Lord. And I take it, therefore, that it's similar for us. The fact of God's faithfulness and our security in Christ, the reality of Christ's return and the final judgment, these things ought not to breed complacency, but to give urgency to our own pursuit of godly living. After all, that's what the New Testament writers keep coming back to time and again. When they speak of the return of Christ, the ultimate and great day of the Lord, when Jesus comes back to wrap up history and to save and to judge, Anytime that's mentioned in the New Testament, yes, believers are told to have confidence and assurance, but also consistently. It gives urgency to the many charges to live godly lives in light of the day. If you do a quick scan of the kind of language that's used when the day of Christ is spoken of, we learn that the Christian is commanded to be sober, to be awake, to be watchful, to set our hearts and minds on things that are above, to be steadfast, and to abound in the work of the Lord, even as we await the return of the Lord. 
That day, which as we began our time together with, the day that he has fixed on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed. So I take it that this passage should give great urgency to our godliness of living. I take it it should give great urgency to our sharing of the gospel. After all, if this is a picture of what God's judgment is like for all who don't know Jesus, that should embolden us to make Jesus known. And maybe even if you're here with us this morning as someone who hasn't yet put their trust in Jesus, there may be really hard things to hear in this, but maybe also a sobering wake-up call that if you have been keeping God at arm's length and putting off any decision to live for him, there really will come a day when it's too late. So I would urge you to accept the mercy he's held out to you in Christ and to put your trust in him so that the day of the Lord becomes a day of rejoicing and gladness as well as a day of sobering and dark judgment. But that's just one thing. The scope, of course, goes even wider than that. Yes, it gives urgency to our evangelism. This passage also gives urgency to all of our battles with sin, all of our pursuit of godliness. Because it reminds us that sin is not to be trifled with because God is not to be trifled with. Keeping repentance and pursuing godly living need to be urgent and ongoing things in light of what lies ahead. Friends, no one can endure the day of the Lord. We'll see as we go through Joel, the gospel light will shine through how God and his mercy has made anyone able to stand in that day of judgment. But as we close this morning, let's do so letting the sobering reminder of that hit home that no one can endure that day And therefore, let's ask for God's help to walk with him faithfully towards the day of Christ's return. Let me lead us in prayer. Father God, we confess that when we see sin in our world and the sin in our hearts, we are slow to lament and wheel and need to be quicker. And we pray you would help us to be moved by all the ways in which we sin against you and offend you. And we pray that in light of the reality of Christ's return, you would help us to be quick to repent, quick to ask for your mercy, and hungry to grow in godliness and righteousness. We pray that we would know the great confidence that day should fill us with, and also the great urgency in keeping short accounts with you and walking with you faithfully. We pray for your help in all these things by your Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus, confident that you hear and answer our prayers. Amen.